during this hearing, I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free. I stand on the shoulders of so many who have come before me, including Judge Constance Baker Motley, who was the first African-American woman to be appointed to the federal bench and with whom I share a birthday. And like Judge Motley, I have dedicated my career to ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. For the first time since its founding in 1789, a black woman will likely sit on the Supreme Court. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, President Biden's Supreme Court pick, is expected to be confirmed next week after four days of testimony before Congress. The hearings have been a barrage of questions, some of which have little to do with her or the position she's hoping to fill. Do you interpret Justice Ginsburg's meaning of men and women as male and female? I want to try to understand here, is it your view that society is too hard on sex offenders? Do you agree with Ms. Hannah Jones that one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare independence is because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. Republicans are trying to convince moderate Democrats to oppose Jackson's nomination because unless they peel off some blue votes, she's certain to be confirmed. After the break, we'll discuss the historic confirmation proceedings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. We'll also hear some of your reactions to the hearings and talk about what's next for America's judiciary. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Today, we get to hear from you as we share your reaction to the hearings and ask what's next for America's judiciary. Joining us for this conversation is Melissa Murray. She's a law professor at the NYU School of Law. She's also co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which is about the Supreme Court. Professor Murray, welcome. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Judge Ladoris Hazard-Cordell. She's a retired judge of the Santa Clara County Supreme Court. Judge Cordell, it's great to have you back. Good to be here. Thank you. And Simone Yap. She's the national chair of the National Black Law Students Association. She's also a third-year law student at Northeastern University School of Law. Simone, welcome. Super excited to be here. So I first want to get all of your reactions to the hearings. Professor Murray, I'll come to you first. Well, I thought that Judge Jackson really acquitted herself well. She was the model of judicial temperament. Um, She was really peppered on all sides with a barrage of questions. And some of the questions, as your intro noted, were not incredibly fair or even pointed. And and some of the questioning veered into the realm of blatant disrespect at various points, but she really held her own. Um, She was steely in the face of that obvious opposition and she acquitted herself incredibly well. A a true credit to the Biden administration and the vetting process. Um, She was absolutely superb. Judge Cordell, what about for you? I agree with Professor Murray, but I will say that if ever there were a confirmation hearing that was an example of political theater, this was it. Um, I have, um, the questions were from the conservatives, disrespectful, they were race baiting, um, and it was clear that they were basically trying to appeal to their base, and uh, that saddened me quite a bit. Simone, you flew from Houston to D.C. to watch the hearings in person with a group of other Black law students. What was that experience like? 
So the experience was phenomenal, and I would like to thank Senators Markey as well as Ossoff for extending um, the tickets for us to attend. It was truly breathtaking to be in that room as a Black woman who looks like me, looks like my friends, has sister locks, is going through this confirmation process and is being a demonstration of what a masterclass in grace, poise, and judicial style looks like. She navigated all of the misogynoir, transphobic attacks and really reinforced what the role of a judge should be, to be impartial, to take the law and apply them to the facts, but also maintain fairness in all decisions that are made. Now, Judge Cordell, the hearing process is a grueling one, as we saw, with hours and hours of questioning. I want to get more into that later, but Judge Jackson has been through this before. What's her experience with Senate confirmation hearings? Well, her previous experiences, ones which were very positive, uh, she had very little opposition, if any, when she came through to get confirmation as a district court judge, which in the federal system is a trial court judge, and on to the circuit court, which is the appellate judge. So she's had a very positive experience until now, because now, uh, particularly the Republicans say that the stakes are so high, and this institution of the Supreme Court has been segregated for so long. And just think about it, it wasn't until 1981 that the first woman even came on to the court. So the opposition is there. Um, she faced it down beautifully, but it's a shame that she had to face it down the way that she did. Here's a message we got from Danielle. I'm a 3L at Georgetown University Law Center, and I was born and raised in the South Bronx, one of the poorest districts in the country. Ever since I was a little girl, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, not because I knew any lawyers or had any of them in my family, but because I was tired of seeing so many people who looked like me get caught up in the perpetual cycle of prison. Although my passion is criminal defense and I want to be a public defender, I often feel shame for choosing that profession. Watching the confirmation hearings for Kataji Brown-Jackson is very affirming. She is doing what many people never imagined others, especially a Black woman, could do. I cried when I marched down to the Capitol and the U.S. Supreme Court while yelling out her name. I cried because it feels so surreal and it shouldn't have to feel that way. Danielle, thanks for leaving us that message. Uh, Judge Cordell, as someone who was deeply involved in, in the law, and a Black woman. What does this moment feel like for you? This is a huge deal. I understand the importance of being the first, as being the first um, African-American woman judge in Northern California when I was appointed to the bench. Uh, the importance of this cannot be overstated. Um, when you want to build trust and confidence in, in an institution such as the Supreme Court, that institution has to look like America. So how can the public have confidence and trust if an institution is segregated? So when the uh, there is more diversity in life experiences in the personal and professional backgrounds of those on the court, that promotes a richer jurisprudence. And, and finally, um, the judges who are on the court, who've seen different kinds of problems in their prejudicial careers, um, come to approach the law with different angles. And that's very, very important. Professor Murray, I also wanted to give you a chance to reflect on how you're experiencing this moment personally as a Black woman in the law. 
Well, one of the things I'm marveling at is sort of the generational differences in how black women are viewing all of this. I mean, you know, I love that these law students are taking such inspiration from Judge Jackson's domination and her performance here and you know, thinking that they can have it all. But I think it's really interesting that women of my generation, I'm you know, in my 40s at this point, and um, are looking at Judge Jackson and listening to her be very candid about the struggles she has faced as a working mother. Um, she began her introduction by apologizing essentially to her daughters that she had not always gotten the balance between working motherhood and her job responsibilities the way she would have liked. And I think every mother who has to work outside of the home, I mean, including black mothers who've historically worked outside of the home, can really appreciate how difficult that balance is to reconcile. Jane tweets, I listened to parts of the hearings and was excited and impressed by Judge Jackson's poise, intelligence, and thoughtful, informed responses. I was disgusted, as usual, by the disrespectful bullying of several Republican senators who wanted to hear themselves talk more than anything. Uh, Let's get to some of the questions lawmakers posed to Judge Jackson and her responses to them. Here's one exchange she had with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican. As you just noted, I have law enforcement in my background, and I am very familiar with the problems that crime cause in the communities where we live. Okay, Judge, I'm sorry. We have a few minutes here. You have a lifetime appointment if you're confirmed. I asked a simple either-or question. Does United States need more or fewer police? Senator, the determination about whether there should be more or fewer police is a policy decision by another branch of government. It is not something that judges have control over, and I will stay in my lane in terms of the kinds of things that are properly in the judicial branch. Now, Professor Murray, when Judge Jackson talks about her her background, she she's talking about her role as a public defender. What did her career as a public defender look like? Well, as a public defender, she is charged with upholding the Constitution's commitment to provide a lawyer to all of those in the criminal justice system, whether they can afford it or not. And so one of the things that the um, the exchanges with the various Republican senators have been aimed at doing is painting her a soft on crime because she has represented these individuals. But again, she emphasized over and over again that public defenders do not select their clients. Their clients are appointed to them. And more importantly, the entire job of being a public defender is one about defending the Constitution and indeed the constitutional commitment to pro bono defense in criminal in the criminal context. So I thought she handled all of that very well. It's important to have a public defender on the court. We haven't had anyone who has done criminal defense since Thurgood Marshall left the bench in 1991. And there are a number of cases on the court's docket each year that deal with issues of criminal justice. So this is an important perspective to have represented along with the many prosecutorial perspectives that we already have represented on the court. Uh, Judge Cordell, why why is this path so rare for Supreme Court justices that they, they have a background in, in public defense? So interesting that you bring this up because um, these hearings showed such a disrespect for public defenders. Uh, when I was on the bench, again, this is a state court on the Superior Court in California, uh, most of the judges were former prosecutors who really showed very little respect at all for the public defenders who appeared in their courtrooms. And there is a sense that 
if you were a prosecutor, then uh, you're going to be a better judge because you're just going to um, be tough on crime, which is completely false. Um, and it demonstrates a misunderstanding of the importance of what public defenders do. Uh, it's very sad. And hopefully with this appointment, with, with her nomination and confirmation, she'll start to turn the tide here and there'll be more uh, judges appointed in the federal and state courts that have these uh, public defender backgrounds. Simone is someone who's currently studying the law. What did you take away from these exchanges about some of the basic misunderstandings about the role of public defenders and, and the role of judges as well? Absolutely. So I, I want to just circle back to the phrase tough on crime and what that dog whistles. Because as we know, if we look at the legislation, even the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which was brought up during this hearing and how it disproportionately sentenced with a, originally 100 to 1 and then with the reformation that was done, crack versus cocaine and looking at the communities where these drugs were present, it is pushing toward a carceral state and continuing um, slavery just through our incarceration incarceration systems and structure. Now, looking at this hearing and even especially attacks um, from the Republican senators, they're trying to convert the role of a judge into a politician and not recognize what the role of Congress is. Throughout this entire um, hearing process, a lot of the Republican senators have attempted to hit on her sentencing of child pornography cases. However, if you look at that structure and the pending bills that is based on Congress, judges have the role of interpreting what Congress, the respective commissions develop and how to apply those guidelines. As demonstrated, the original guidelines were developed when these cases were happening through standard postal mail, not with the technological advancements that we have now, such as computer, our telephones, and all of those technological advancements. And so trying to have a judge that is supposed to be impartial play the role of a jurist, but also a politician is unfair and also converts what the legal system is purported to be, which is supposed to be equal and fair. But it cannot be that if you are trying to have a judge wear multiple hats. Well, in another exchange, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, also a Republican, pressed Judge Jackson about her religious faith. Do you attend church regularly? Well, Senator, I am reluctant to talk about my faith in this way just because I want to be mindful of the need for the public to have confidence in my ability to separate out my personal views. Well, how would you feel if a senator up here said, your faith, a dogma lives loudly within you and that's of concern? How would you feel if somebody up here on our side said, you know, you attend church too much for me or your faith is a little bit different to me? and they would suggest that it would affect your decision. Would you find that offensive? Senator, I'm... I'm... I would if I were you. Now, Senator Graham's questioning of Judge Jackson here was prompted by the confirmation hearings for Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And Graham has accused Democrats of badgering Barrett over uh, unfairly over her religious beliefs. Professor Murray, what political dynamics are at play here around this question of faith and the court? And is this new? 
Well, again, as Judge Cordell has pointed out, questions of faith and in particular justices representing faiths that might be viewed as minority faiths or departures from the default of uh, white Protestantism certainly has been cause for some concern on the court, at least historically. But right now on the court, we have a court that is composed largely of those who have been reared in the Catholic faith. Um, so this question of faith um, is one that's live, but it's also a question of homogeneity on the court that's worth thinking about. One of the things I think was so interesting and important about Judge Jackson's uh, performance and, and her words in her introduction is that she made clear that she too is a person of faith. Um, she really centered her faith and her family and her commitment to the Constitution as grounding her. And I think she made clear that it is not simply conservatives who have a monopoly on religious faith in this country. There are those who are progressive and liberal who also have faith and believe in God and, and guide, and their lives are guided by that faith. Um, and it doesn't have to be in the service of conservative causes. And I think that was an important point for her to make and an important intuition for the Democrats to see before them and, and maybe even to play out in their own politics, but also for the American public to hear. We got this message from Faven in Oakland, California. She's currently a law student at the University of Idaho College of Law. As a Black woman at a PWI, I'm always actively searching for representation. But today, watching Judge Jackson's confirmation hearing, I was reminded of my own agency and capabilities as an aspiring attorney. Imposter syndrome that law school ignites was pushed to the side because this monumental nomination, although long overdue, shows me how far I can aspire to go in my legal career. Faven, thanks for leaving us that message. Simone, how important has representation been for you in pursuing a career in law? It's been so important because to see women and just other people that look like you to feel comfortable in the space, but it's also about the ideals that they represent. For example, I can align myself with Judge Jackson, but I cannot align myself with Justice Thomas because of the ideals that are tied to community and service and who are you standing up for? Who are you advocating for? And what ideals do you hold true? Are you allowing for personal autonomy and choice? Or do you think that should be left up to states and government and essentially allow a third party to control what you can do? So seeing someone whose ideals I align with, but also I can see myself in and I can look to my friend and see her as well, that just means so much. We're discussing the historic nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from one of you. I was raised in Florida but completed law school in Washington, D.C. at Howard University School of Law. I always knew I wanted to be an attorney because I saw from an early age how integral the law is in our everyday lives, and I wanted to use the law for change. Seeing Judge Kintaji Brown-Jackson being confirmed is like watching a possible future for myself become a reality. To have someone who looks like me sitting in the highest court of the United States is something I never thought I'd witness in my lifetime. Elizabeth, thanks for that message. Now let's turn to Judge Jackson's opening statement when she paid tribute to her predecessor and former boss. Justice Breyer, in particular, not only gave me the greatest job that any young lawyer could ever hope to have, 
but he also exemplifies what it means to be a Supreme Court justice of the highest level of skill and integrity, civility, and grace. It is extremely humbling to be considered for Justice Breyer's seat, and I know that I could never fill his shoes. But if confirmed, I would hope to carry on his spirit. And I'm a big believer that people always bring their own shoes. It's not about filling someone else's. But Judge Cordell, Judge Jackson clerked for Justice Breyer in 1999. So now, 23 years later, she's being considered for his seat. How, how full circle is this moment for her career? This is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, when you are a law student, uh, your real focus is getting through law school and passing the bar. Uh, thereafter, it's about getting a job. And if your first job is starting is clerking because you either want to be on the court or you want to teach, for example, um, then that's the next big, big hurdle. Uh, and once you're over that, uh, the sky is the limit if you want to stay within that realm. This, this woman, and I call her a young woman, I know she's 51, but she's really just really getting going in her judicial career, has really um, come full circle. And once she is confirmed, it, I'm sure it's going to be like a dream come true for her and, and surreal. It's my hope one day, uh, and probably not in my lifetime, that she will eventually become the chief justice of our Supreme Court. And would that be something? We got this email from Will who says, those two long, grinding, and often repetitive hearing sessions were clearly cruel and unusual punishment for everyone. Uh, Judge Cordell, in, in watching the hearings, what did you think about the process itself and, and whether whether it's, it's effective. It's my view that the way the confirmation hearing was held and, and more recent, in recent history, uh, they're not very effective. If the purpose is to determine the eligibility qualifications of a person to sit on the Supreme Court, it really has become more political theater. Um, and it's really a demonstration of how little even the senators understand about the legal system and the legal process. What is important, I just want to pick up on the whole public defender aspect of this, is that she will be um, the only one sitting at conference meetings. And conference meetings are where the justices come together in a room with their clerks to talk about the particular cases they've decided to take up. And when they consider criminal cases, their decisions will impact everyone in this country. There will be someone sitting at the table who will be able to talk to them about that part of the process, about the criminal legal system. And I just want to bring up when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor uh, recounted how she learned from Justice Thurgood Marshall. The two were on the court at the same time. And she said this, occasionally at conference meetings, I still catch myself looking expectantly for his raised brow and his twinkling eye, hoping to hear just once more another story that would by and by perhaps change the way I see the world. And that's exactly why it is so important to have these diverse views, these individuals with diverse backgrounds sitting at the table and in the room, and she will be there. Thank God. Now, Professor Murray, you've said that this hearing and those before it have basically been, quote, about shadow boxing with Roe and Casey. And Roe and Casey are references to the Supreme Court cases, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. What do you mean? 
Well, all of the confirmation processes that we have seen in our lifetimes, and this is going back as far as 1987 with the failed nomination of Robert Bork, have been about the question of whether these justices will vote to uphold Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the two major opinions that undergird the constitutional right to an abortion. And, you know, rarely is the word abortion spoken, but we do hear questions about whether or not the nominees would respect past precedent, um, what are their views of stare decisis, the requirement that judges adhere to past decisions unless they are egregiously wrong or other circumstances warrant a departure. What's unusual about Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings is that we are still getting questions about um, judicial philosophy, stare decisis, and whether or not unenumerated rights like the right to privacy are constitutionally sound. Um, but we're hearing this at a point where it seems all but certain that the abortion right is going to be dismantled by the court by at least this summer in a case that is currently pending before the court. And so the question is, why continue to harp on the issue of abortion if it seems like the overruling of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey is very much in the offing. And I think what we are seeing is the conservatives really tipping their hand that abortion is not the end game here. The interest in unenumerated rights or rights that are not explicit in the Constitution is really about not just unraveling abortion, but unraveling a whole range of rights that rest on this right to privacy. So that includes the right of parents to raise their children in the manner of their choosing. And you can think about that Texas law that prohibits parents from giving their children gender-affirming therapies. Uh, it also undergirds the right to marry. And yesterday, um, Judge uh, Senator John Cornyn from Texas talked about Obergefell versus Hodges, which is the 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage across the country. I think they are telegraphing to us that abortion is not the end game. It's merely the beginning of a larger battle to unravel all of these rights of intimate life that are rooted in this unenumerated right to privacy. Professor Murray, what's next in the push for Jackson's confirmation? Well, uh, we will hear on Thursday the witnesses from both sides. So these are individuals who will basically give their views of Judge Jackson and her likely judicial philosophy. Um, we'll also hear from the American Bar Association who has had to evaluate Judge Jackson's record. They've rated her as extremely qualified, the highest rating that they can offer. So we will hear from those individuals. And then basically we will be waiting for a committee vote. And um, the committee is basically evenly divided. It seems unlikely that Judge Jackson will get votes from the Republicans on this committee, but that will not necessarily be fatal to her nomination. She can still come forward um, even without those Republican votes. But first, she'll have to get out of the committee with a committee vote, and then it will go to the floor of the Senate for a vote by the full Senate. And again, all that is required there is a simple majority. Since the Senate is evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, if she's unable to peel off um, one of the Republicans, then it will be left to the president of the Senate, who also happens to be the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, to cast the deciding vote. And if that is what happens, um, it will truly be, I think, an historic event to have a black woman cast the deciding vote to put the first black woman on the high court. Uh, Judge Cordell, when you think about the makeup of the Supreme Court and the judiciary as a whole, how far do you think we have to go to, to have that body reflect the country? 
Well, progress is measured not by far we have how far we have come, but how far we have yet to go. Uh, we are making progress, and it is going to take time. If you, we've just witnessed how a black woman, highly qualified, uh, the best education one can get, uh, was basically beaten up um, by Republicans who just don't want her there. Uh, the path is probably not going to be a lot easier for the first Asian American, the first Native American. Uh, and that being said, uh, progress is going to be made because she will be appointed to the bench. Uh, it's really also important to know that in the most recent poll, the Supreme Court was given its lowest rating, that is confidence by the public in it, uh, than ever before. And that is because the court has become so politicized, so divided, and because it does not look like America. So as we move closer and closer to looking more like the people that the court impacts, I believe that the confidence will build. That's true of any kind of institution. Simone, very briefly, what will you be taking back to Northeastern University School of Law with you after this experience? Just being able to talk about what the experience was like in this room, being able to speak with multiple senators about the significance of Judge Jackson's nomination, but also confirmation, why it is necessary to have a black woman on the bench, but also with her credentials. Not only does she represent black women attorneys, black women jurists, but also all of the public defenders, whether federal or state. So just showing you that regardless of your career path, pursue it, serve your community, serve the public interest, and be earnest in everything that you do. That's Simone Yap. She's the national chair of the National Black Law Students Association. She's also a third-year law student at Northeastern University School of Law. Also with us, Judge Ladoris Hazard-Cordell. She's a retired judge of the Santa Clara County Superior Court. And Melissa Murray, a law professor at NYU School of Law and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which is about the Supreme Court. Professor Murray, Judge Cordell, Simone, it was a pleasure speaking with you. For more 1A coverage of America's judicial system, check out our discussions, Ask a Public Defender, and what we talk about when we talk about judges, both available at the1a.org and as podcasts. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.